Welcome to the Classical Voice Training Podcast, the home of tips, tricks, and techniques. I'm James Platt, and I'll be your guide to the weird and wonderful world of classical voice. Join me every Tuesday for interviews, exercises, training tips, and much, much more. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. This is Classical Voice Training's third podcast. We're going to be talking about vocal training during lockdown. I'm joined by my two directors, fellow directors, Professor Janice Chapman and Andrew Follin. Hi, guys. Hello. Hi. Hi, everyone. What have we been? What have we been up to since we last spoke? More of the same, really. It's just continuing to teach through via zoom through lockdown um again learning as we go finding out best practices what, what what's feasible what's less feasible but certainly most of my clients are finding it very effective um, my clients are enjoying it especially the ones who live abroad because they don't have to get here hmm. They're enjoying the fact that i'm available to them just by coming online Absolutely. And the big word at the moment for everybody is latency, isn't it? The, the big issue with online teaching is latency and the delay. How are you guys finding that on platforms like Zoom? I find it depends a lot on the internet connection at the people's end. I think you know, if we've all got good um, fiber optic, ethernet connected um, connections to zoom it works well but you're always dependent on on the other end of the of the, of the pipe so to speak but yeah. i've noticed that people's internet connections have got better through lockdown because people want to keep in touch with their families and do the online quizzes etc people have automatically i think upgraded to better equipment so i think if, if this becomes more normal the new abnormal um i think we'll find it can be very effective and as, as we say rather than having to travel across from wherever on the train or the plane or by car to come to a studio you know just just a, a three or four to point three or point four seconds of latency is a price worth paying i think i agree it just wipes out the possibility of having accompaniment running in the studio at the time of the lesson um, which is not such a problem in a way. I mean, it allows you to work technically and very specifically on repertoire, I suppose, doesn't it? Yes, and what you're seeing and what you're hearing is relative to what you know the singer can do. Hmm. So you're not hearing an end product, you're hearing a version of an end product. But if you know the singer's voice well and you know their style of singing, you can be just as discriminating online as you can in the flesh. Hmm. In fact, even Absolutely. more so, possibly. Yeah, I agree. A bit scary for them, really. <laughs> away with a bit more in the past than they're getting away with now. <laughs> yeah, there's nowhere to hide. Nowhere. Literally. I mean, it'd be interesting as the technology develops to see how low we can get that latency. And I mean, there are various solutions out there that might allow us to have accompaniment like Soundjack, um, Jitsi. So we're going to be exploring those over the next couple of weeks, I suppose, aren't we? But it's so new for everybody. We're, everybody's scrambling to find the best solution. That's right. I think you mentioned that on Soundjack. It seems to be the way that things are going to go um, from the audio point of view. Um, yeah, the different platforms. People, uh, people find 
it depends how you teach, I think. For Zoom, I like the fact that I can share my screen and still have access to all my documents and all my images that I generally teach from. And sharing those via Zoom is really effective. I found that Skype was less effective. I've used Google Duo on a similar day. I don't, I don't quite find that as easy to use. But we are going to... Um, explore Jitsi this week, I think. That sounds quite promising. I think the two major problems, or the two major solutions at the moment, there are some audio solutions that don't have very good video conferencing options. Um, and some of the solutions require a high level of equipment at both ends. So I think Soundjack, generally you need an audio interface, you need uh, obviously a high-speed internet connection, and I think some of the American researchers shown very low latency at about three to 400 miles distance, which is amazing when you think about it. I think also the processing power of the computer in some of these low latency solutions plays a big part, and the, the more processing power you have, the less latency. But I think there's some other solutions coming through now that people can use with more basic equipment. Um, and they're the ones I think that we'll be waiting to see which one of those puts its head above the parapet and maybe takes over from someone like Zoom. Yeah, I mean, even if uh, at the end of lockdown, I think some people will still still choose to, to work online. I mm. think some people want to get back to face to face. But as we said, for a lot of people, they've discovered the benefits of not having to travel and not feeling the pressure of being in a studio and having committed three hours of traveling time and, and expenses to stay in near, near the studio to walk in for an hour session, which becomes quite intense. Suddenly you can again have more frequent lessons with, with less pressure on yourself. So I think this will be the certainly for me will be something I build into my teaching practice going forward. Yeah, I, I have found that 40, 40 to 45 minutes is maximum concentration time, both for the singer and for me. I mean, just sometimes I imagine I could go on another 15 minutes. But generally speaking, I think that the amount of, of heavy concentration that goes into this kind of work has to be accounted for. There's some interesting research. They call it Zoom burnout, don't they? And they're talking about because we can't pick up the usual visual and order to cues because everything's slightly delayed, the brain sort of goes into overdrive on these um, digital solutions, which is why they're so tiring. It's a really interesting... Yeah, Zoom burnout. <laughs> well, I think you mentioned a while ago, James, on one of the Facebook chats about cortisol release when you're staring intently at a point not in the distance. And certainly we all felt initially it was very stressful doing this. Triggered by spy. I think I've learned to, to look around the screen a bit more like and look out into the far distance and yeah, get absolutely. away from that, yeah. Focus on a point and expand is the yeah. key, I think. <laughs> but we were going to have a chat um, about our courses we've got our practical course coming up first from the 3rd to the 7th of august and we've been putting our heads together to think how we can offer what before has been a fantastic in-person course with lots of hands-on work how we can offer that best digitally and we're going to probably use we are going to use the zoom platform what do we think what how can we maximize um how people receive this information through a digital format I think the idea of having them, um, the singers able to talk to us all the time uh, through a chat room so that we're going to get immediate feedback, I think that's a very important um, component. Also, the fact that we can demonstrate the singing, the exercises, the posture, the, 
the connections in the body that we can demonstrate that and we can look at them coming back to us is going to help enormously. Um, it's not going to be the same as hands-on, but there's no reason why we can't very strategically get the singers to put, put their own hands in the, the, the right places and to experience what their bodies are doing when they're connecting up, especially in questions of breathing and support, for example. So I think it's just going to put a lot more of the responsibility onto the singers. Um, and I, I think in a funny kind of way, this is going to be rather good. I agree. Mm -hmm. Oh, definitely. I think on the um, when we did the primal sound and accent method into supported singing workshop, James and you presented that you know your palpation protocol, and we were discussing during that workshop how because we can't and I, I, I said I don't actually do hands-on teaching, but certainly for you and Janice, hands-on teaching is a big thing. But we can't do that anyway during lockdown. So giving the tools to the pupil, we found very effective. And certainly on the courses, that'll be what we're going to emphasize a lot. But people will then understand exactly how it feels to them and be able to explain to the for the teachers, certainly to their pupils, what they're trying to feel for. So I think, yeah, certainly it, it's going to be equally effective, if not more so. Yeah, we've already tried our one-day courses. They were very successful. I think people got a lot out of them. And this is going to be something different. Again, more interactive, slightly smaller numbers. Um, we're hoping people are going to, as Janice said, comment in the chat throughout, which is something actually that we couldn't do in a in a live course. If I was, if we were lecturing in a live course, we couldn't get that live feedback all the way through. So it's well, there were a lot be, more people, of course. Oh, absolutely, it should be more interactive for them. And we, we've also got our pedagogy course the week following that, the 10th to the 14th of August, again on Zoom. And some people have signed up for both of those courses. How do we think um, those courses will differ? I mean, I'm asking the question. I know the answers to this as well. But let's start with Andrew. <laughs> <laughs> well, we have done this before. We have done in a, a practical what, what we in the past call the, the Sats for Singers and Sats for Teachers. Obviously, this year, we're not trying to, to make it quite as, as differentiated in terms of the, 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 the clientele. Lots of people, again, singing and teaching, singing. Lots of, of our clients do sing and do teach. So, again, it will just be more a matter of the practical course, understanding, you know, the, the, the rationale, the logic, the thinking behind the exercises and experiencing them in your own voice. And then the pedagogy course, far more about the, the science behind, in more detail behind all that to understand. And, you know, the question is always asked, how much science do I need to know? Or do, do my pupils need to know? Well, as much as they want to know. And ho hopefully you're always, as a teacher, you know, a few steps ahead of your pupils to, to have the answers to those questions. Um, to be sorry, Joe. It's a good idea to be ahead of your pupils. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, always. But it's, it's surprising that some, some people say, often say, you know, I don't need to know all this because, well, you do. You need to know as much as you possibly can. Whether you need to pass that on to your pupils is well, the point. Well, the thing is that a lot of the young singers these days know more than the teachers that they're with. And they get found out very quickly. I mean, they can ask questions of the teachers and the teachers don't know. And the students go, well, actually, I know this because I've been online and researched it myself and my teacher doesn't know. So they are then immediately wondering if they're in the right studio. Exactly. exactly. And they can vote with their feet. 
And as we always say, there are no stupid questions. I mean, I found learning to sing very frustrating because I couldn't get the answers to the questions that I was asking. It's like, oh, you don't need to know that. I said, well, I wouldn't be asking the question if I didn't need to know. Whether I need to know, but I certainly want to know. And I want to know that you know the answers. And if you don't, as you say, I'll vote with my feet and go somewhere else. So certainly as, as teachers, I think the three of us share a curiosity, you know. And, and a for the attitude too, that... The knowledge is there. We just have to roll up our sleeves and go after it. Yeah. And I think, again, what, what differentiates, certainly when working with, with you, Janice, and, and James as well, um, is that appetite to learn. We, we've all come, come across information that doesn't, doesn't contradict things, but doesn't quite fit necessarily but rather than rejecting the information we try to find okay are we wrong on this one have we have we missed a point is there a piece of the jigsaw missing can we find a way to absorb this new information into the existing model and we've done that on, on, on numerous occasions over the years and certainly it helps the model that we teach from to get more more coherent more cohesive and um, mindset isn't it a growth well exactly that yeah and we i think we definitely share that and what i'd say is on the pedagogy course we want that and people you know come along and be curious ask the questions and if you don't understand something ask away and we'll we'll discuss it and if, if we don't know the answer then we'll be honest and say well actually research is ongoing into this subject but you know keep your finger on the pulse on that one because things are changing i, I think things are changing much more quickly now than they were maybe 20 years ago there's a lot more being done yeah definitely and yeah. it's a fascinating time to be involved i think very much so and i think you know for the pedagogy we've all over the last couple of years had things that have challenged our point of view that have challenged our previous thinking but you just have to jump in with both feet and and explore it see what's useful and see what's current you know it doesn't necessarily cancel out all of the historical pedagogy work that you may have done but it gives you an incredible backup and solid bank of information from which to work sure you know so no, the research coming out now is clearly peer-reviewed it's, it's not someone's someone's opinion it's all there and if if you read a paper that seems to contradict what you think you do have to question your thinking rather than question the research and i think that's what that's what the three of us have, have done and what we we have in common the appetite this sounds interesting let's find a way to make this work for us yeah we've i really enjoy that and in a way, it's going to be interesting this time because what we normally do is we le give a lecture and then we go away into breakout groups and we work on the practical points of the lecture. Because this time we're doing the practical course first, we're very much going to be giving those practical triggers and then those people that want to come to the pedagogy course and have the big concepts explained in detail. I actually think it's going to be very, very beneficial because it often, the easiest way into some of this information is to actually do it first do the exercise see that it works then you'll have the curiosity to want to ask why yeah i think you're right i think that's a good way to go no definitely and and those who want to know just enough to understand uh you know for their own benefit how to make the exercise more more effective they can have that information on the practical course and as you say those who want to delve a little bit further maybe with the perspective of teaching to other people the pedagogy course is ideal for, to go into more depth 
It's an interesting thing with singers, isn't it, in terms of how much they want to know. I mean, I've got some uh, colleagues of mine who are very fine singers who know enough to operate their voices efficiently, but they don't really want to know more than that. But they have great faith that the teacher knows more than that, and that's why they trust them to look after the knowledge base. And I think with our courses, it's, you know, if you're coming on a practical course, we will distill all of this information into bite-sized chunks. And then, you know, you'll see the vast amount of research behind that in the pedagogy courses. And actually, uh, watching teachers develop, as we have done over the last couple of years, through the pedagogy courses, they get this detailed information. And actually to see them put it into practice has been a, a very gratifying for me. Oh, yes, and for me as well. Yeah. We had a lovely letter back just this week, didn't we, from somebody who's been on we a did. number of courses, um, who's who's putting it into practice all the time and loving every minute of it. Completely mm -hmm. enthusiastic about his teaching. It makes me think of Janice. I remember you saying to me early on in my studies into pedagogy, you said sometimes it's as important for the studio work to lead the research as it is for the research to lead what we're doing in the studio. Do you want to talk a bit about that? Because I find that fascinating. Well, <laughs> as a singing teacher, you've always got this feedback going on, your eyes, your ears, your sense of what's going on in the singer is coming at you as a kind of a product. If you're getting it right and they keep improving, you are affirmed all the time in what you're doing. And um, that, I mean, that that's so, so valuable in the studio. And a lot of teachers are getting good results with, with quite faulty knowledge and faulty understanding, but they're being led by their ears and their ears are very good. So it's... Um, Oh, I just think as a teacher, it was absolutely essential for me to know how the machinery worked. And that fed into my own singing. So the fact that I can more or less sing reasonably decently over 80, I think is fun. And it's taken a very, very long time, a lot of teaching, a lot of learning to regain that kind of confidence that I had when I started out and I knew nothing. I just was wired up correctly when I was young um, and I had to lose it all to find it again. <laughs> I had to find it in the right way. I had to find it by understanding it, being taught it and by losing the kind of pride that went with just being able to do it from a point of view of, of ignorance, <sighs> really, yeah. And you as a singing teacher that was reading the research, but then you started to get involved in leading some research and le in the papers that you did in well, Queensland. I, well, I wouldn't say I was leading it. No, I was as much a passenger as anybody, really, um, because I was in the world populated by a neurophysiologist, an ENT surgeon, um, a breathing and support a respiratory physician. I mean, I, I was surrounded by people who knew more than I did, but they knew it in their own field and not applied to my field. Mm. And for me to be able to bundle all of their wisdom into an opera singer's body and come out with a product at the end of that was, was fantastic. But I didn't lead it. I, I was there um, sucking up every bit of knowledge I could from the people around me. And it was truly multidisciplinary what was going on. 
And then that led the way for a lot more research, which followed in Australia, but by which time I was back in England, of course. But um, University of Sydney, and then further than that, obviously, Queensland with Ron Morris there, teaching a pedagogy course uh, as part of a postgrad. There's some fantastic work going on there. There's some fantastic work going on in America. Um, here in England, we don't have don't have people interested in providing money to make <laughs> this sort of thing possible. And James, you with your PhD, know that you have to fight for every penny absolutely you get to help you do research. So it's just interesting whether the COVID syndrome of us having been denied access to this wonderful art form is going to turn around and make it even more crucial for us that we um, feed ourselves with it afterwards. We're going to need it badly, especially when we've been deprived for months and months. Mm. I hope so anyway. Mm -hmm. I think we're going to be, be finding that we can do without it, that's for sure. Now I've got a quote for the two of you from yeah. a, book, a, a book I've been reading at the moment called How to Read a Book. Fantastic <laughs> book. And is it I, like a, 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 a Janet and John book, James? Is it no, just it's, spot, spot sees ball? It's a sort of, uh, it's a PhD talking about how to assess reading and read books. Very good book. Anyway, I came across this quote and he actually, it's a skiing analogy, but I thought it was fantastic for singers. And, it, and they said, you must learn to forget the separate acts in order to perform all of them and indeed any of them well but in order to forget them as separate acts you have to learn them first as separate acts only then can you put them together to become a great skier now i'm going to put singer in there yeah, isn't that a good quote oh it's wonderful absolutely <laughs> all the component parts yeah they're together you don't need them anymore <laughs> yeah and i think that's often yeah, um, yeah. something that's hurled at, at the voice science community and um, that we sort of how can you possibly think of all that stuff on stage and it's important to emphasize that we shouldn't have to because the works should have been done <laughs> yeah, we never do no and the, the better the work and the, uh, the more consistently the work's been done in advance the less we have to think about it absolutely and that beautiful word efficiency of voice mm. production so that mm. everything you're doing technically is at the service of the music, the, the, the service of the art. Fantastic. Yeah. You know, it doesn't have to take a lifetime like it did with me. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> it can be quicker than that. Hurrah! <laughs> yeah. What's the same? The artist to conceal the art. Mm. Yes, that's it. That's it. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting when you think about how long opera singers train versus how long musical theatre singers train because often they have a much shorter training period um and but often the teaching that they get is more specific more technically based than a lot of historical classical teaching i mean what do you think andrew do you think there's a link there i, I think there's an element that the classical voice takes longer physically to mature mm. Rather than technically, I think a lot of the work that you did on you. I mean, the other the other consideration, of course, is, is linguistics. You've got to learn languages, which you you generally are not going to do in theatre. Um, so you, you'll know from from your training that your your technical training, uh, your, your the physic physicality of the voice had to catch up with your technical training to an extent. I think that's certainly for for classical singers and given the the ossification of the cartilages which happens in the late 20s you can't really have a major career until you get towards that point in in, in your 
physical development. Respiratory theatre singer using a microphone, you can come out to college at 22, 23 and be ready to go. So I think it's, it's, it's as much that as anything else. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, I think, for, you know, from my own experience, it does take an incredible amount of time. I mean, 8, 12 years before you really start to feel completely on top of things, which is, you know, it's about the same amount of time it takes a surgeon to train, isn't it? But it's being able to put all those bits together and then not think about it and go on stage and be a character, but happen to carry over the orchestra and happen not to get tired in a three and a half hour opera takes yeah. time. Yeah. It'd be interesting to see you know, people that came to classical singing later in life who, who only started to have lessons in the mid-twenties, for example. Could they shorten that process? Is it, in fact, a physical limitation or is, is it, as you say, the technical and um, the embedding of all that information? I think that there's an emotional maturity required. Yeah, yeah. Definitely. I mean, to open yourself up like that and just sing really from the feet up um, with this open-hearted... Uh, passion uh, for a long time and in lots of different languages and in a way that's really efficient and beautiful and stylistic all of that it, it's just an immense training process required for that you, unless you're hugely talented I can't see how you can do it very quickly no, no. there's it, too much involved really um, and it's better if singers are sort of around 30 ish before they really hit the big time in any sense at all and I mean look yeah. at somebody like Jonas Kaufmann he he was not a terribly good singer for a long time then he took some time out went and studied got a proper vocal technique and went like a rocket you know yeah. but that was yeah. that was not an accident he had to work like mad for that and he had to have two big goes yeah, yeah but another conversation would be if you had let's say, suboptimal vocal training um, at the point where you're going through your physical development, you know, what would the long-term repercussions of that be? And, and in some cases, it might be better to stay out of the college system until you're physically robust enough to withstand that. I, I, you, you, James, obviously, you went through that track, a very different track, where you were physically mature anyway, kind of an early age, when you, when we first started working together, and your journey through colleges, etc., whether, the, you know, the, the training was always optimised towards your physicality or not, and whether you hit a few hurdles on the way, you're probably best placed for people to speak about that. Uh, but would you think it would have been better to wait a little bit and, and to start with, you know, well, obviously when you met Janice and your technique became far more opt optimized for you was that because you were ready for that information or because you were physically more mature i think it's a it's a really difficult one that i think the musicality required to sing at a top level takes a very very long time to stew and mature and i think regardless of what your voice is doing to become the sort of musician that can do opera at a really high level takes a long time and I you know there are colleagues of mine who didn't do an undergraduate or did an undergraduate in something else and came in and into a postgraduate course and were expected to do opera scenes and they really struggled because they didn't have the experience with the style and, and, and the the breadth of musical knowledge of lots of different styles and singing in choirs for oratorios and doing opera scenes and all these things that sort of just ruminate in your mind and enable you to interpret 
Um, having said that, I had a very, uh, I didn't have a great experience with one of my main teachers at music college and uh, this is well before Janice. And that's one of the main reasons that I ended up studying with Janice. Thank God I did really. Um, but it was, I was getting very little information and some bad information and, that took me a long time to to sort of be rehabilitated out of as well what was it like jan i mean you <laughs> as a young janice will remember me as a young base on her doorstep needing some information <laughs> no it was fascinating because your talent was never in question i mean an immense talent but your voice was very rough and your until we connected your body up um so that your voice was sitting on a proper support system and the breathing was supporting your vocal um, emission properly and balancing everything you were struggling on every level really and it just took what three or four years of quite hard work consistent work you were here every time um or i was in I didn't go into the academy too often because the rooms were so small and I I got a sound level pressure sound pressure yeah, level yeah. in and there were two of you one was one of you was 93.5 and the other one was 93.4 <laughs> I had to complain that I couldn't teach in those rooms anymore mm. without damaging my hearing which you know ultimately happens anyway uh, but the building of a proper proper technique underneath a big operatic larynx is something that can take four or five years really with you know with just concentrating on making these connections and on waiting for everything to grow a bit older yeah exactly uh, yeah. and also james you know if you remember that at six foot five mm. you had postural issues you were a kind loving sort of person who reached down to us smaller individuals <laughs> and a, a very big shelf down. in my upper back yes <laughs> i had, had to get you to stand like an arrogant bastard and that took about Dude. three years <laughs> that took about three minutes knowing james <laughs> <laughs> and, and you had to have a personality transplant as well <laughs> It's so funny, isn't it? Because, yeah, you're, you're dealing with a person who might bend down to people because he doesn't want to look as imposing or, or frighten people. But then when you're on the operatic stage, there's no room for poor posture. So it's... <laughs> you're not going to frighten anybody except the first trombone. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> but it's, it's, I think also because I had a sort of technical crisis early on building one's confidence up oh, after that takes a long time because when you've been beaten down or if you feel like your voice is your you know it's one of your major sources of expression and it stops working and you start to doubt it that can be really especially if, it's, if you've been singing in choirs and for a long time and that's taken away can be very difficult to build the confidence back even after the training is is underway yes and as i mean i'm immensely positive in the way i work and i what unrelentingly positive i think some of my <laughs> no, no, absolutely yeah that's the thing that shines through absolutely yeah. <laughs> sounds like a problem <laughs> <laughs> I, I think michael how do you do that jen how do you keep that positivity all the time <laughs> yeah, it's optimism really <laughs> yeah 
But I, I think singers, the way singers learn is through this positive imagery, this positive reinforcement, through humour, through... Um, well, you just have to be optimistic and you have to know what you're doing, basically. You really have to know. And it's no good if you're getting something wrong, burying your head in the sand and going, well, everyone else is wrong and I'm right. You have to listen. You have to go, oh, well, maybe I've got a Royal Academy R vowel running. And we can't afford that one. We need we need a University of Queensland R <laughs> <laughs> To whatever. carry across the orchestra. Whatever. <laughs> but again, you're, you're teaching the person that's in front of you in this lesson, and every person is individual and and deserve to be treated as an individual. And you 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 know you you hone your skills to be able to give everyone what they want at that point in their development. Again, and staying on track with the longer term aims, etc. That's the old the old saying about teaching people may forget what you say or what you do, but they'll never forget the way you make them feel. Absolutely. Absolutely right. Yeah. And, and it's got to be that the singer who comes for a consultation is at the right point in their own development emotionally, particularly, and really badly wanting some help. Hmm. Because um, sometimes people have come with, with a, a very strange attitude. Um, <laughs> one base from an <laughs> institution told me I was known within the institution as a witch doctor. <laughs> and I just got my results by witchcraft. <laughs> it wasn't very long in the studio. That's because you were on a magic book that's oh taken decades <laughs> to research. Yeah, there we yeah, go. Yeah. Well, the witchcraft was all about knowing how the bloody machinery worked. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I think singers again have an innate sense of what they want, whether they 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 tell you that straight away or not. I had one infamous session a few years ago with someone that came, booked a two-hour session, spent an hour and forty-five minutes telling me about his career. I thought, yes, but you're here in front of me for a reason. Can we get down to what why you're here? But again, that vulnerability of being in a being in a kind of slightly hierarchical position and needing help was was difficult to admit. But eventually, we got to a point, you know, and essentially, I know you're here for a reason. When you tell me what that reason is, I can help you. But until you're ready to tell me, I'm not going to try and tease it out of you. So oh, we've well, got... you. I think I could do with more of that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm just watching the I'm watching the clock ticking away. I think you, you paid for this. It's 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 your session. If you want to if you want to use a therapy session, that's up to you. But at some point, I can help you technically with what you need. Just let me know what that is. So it's like going to the doctors and saying, "Doctor, doctor, there's a problem, but I don't want to tell you what that is." <laughs> it's like you know, get your legs rolled up. Let me see your ankle. It's like that sometimes. So. Yeah, let me get to work. Let me get to work when you're ready, yeah. Oh, well, it's about the whole person, isn't it? Yeah. Of course it is. Of course and it is. Being ready and then being really talented. It's very hard to evaluate what's in the talent bag. And sometimes, you know, somebody comes in and doesn't sound like they've got a lot of talent, uh, but it's revealed after a few weeks or a few months. And yeah. you go, well, I would never have discovered that that was there you know had i turned them away no exactly so they get the benefit of of the doubt for quite a long time really well i think probably i'm not sure about your 
tuition history jam when you were a pupil but i mean i'm sure all of us can remember like the first session with a new teacher is really really traumatic you know you want to be told that you're not garbage and get sent away so it's never ever the best lesson your first lesson and you need the teacher to, to hear through that and understand and people always come to me, oh i'm so nervous today it's like yeah this is not the first first lesson i've ever done i do understand that you're nervous calm down sit down let's have a chat about things and try again it's always better second time through yeah. You know, but yeah. Uh, yeah of course everyone deserves the chance i think and I, i've never ever turned anyone away ever for that reason i might say to them you need to you know limit your expectations at this stage and let's be more patient and see where we could get to in time but as you say there have been some really surprising developments people you never would have thought they'd get to where they got to based on the first first few lessons and that that again from a teaching perspective is wonderful yeah, it is wonderful. The, the one that always used to annoy me, which I heard various teachers say a lot while I was at college, which was people with who obviously had very talented instruments, great instruments, and they'd say that they're not very musical. And often that was because they weren't technically able to be musical yet. And once the technical work had been done, suddenly this musicianship and, and expression and creativity poured out of them, you know. Well, that's the point. You have to learn to play the instrument first. It's called Stimmbildung, and it's part of what should be happening in colleges from undergrad onwards, um, and it should take priority for the first three or four years. Um, but, but wanting to tailor off the phrases to give people very subtle and a detailed musical expression and ling linguistic expression is not always appropriate. You've got to learn to play the instrument first, and then these things become much, much simpler. To bring in and before then you've got to build your instruments unlike a violinist or a pianist you can't just go and buy a, a better instrument you've got to build the instrument before you learn to play it and it's like you go straight in you go to college and term one you get assessed on your ability to sing through a handle aria it's like well where are we we haven't even built the voice yet right that's right Bye bye, black sheep, it'd be good. Well, exactly. Well, why not? There's a lot to be said for doing something simple well. That's yeah. my philosophy. Absolutely. And I think it's this you know, you, you've got two lines running together developing the instrument and developing the musician and one may be in front of the other and one may lag behind and that's the whole educational experience that you hope at the end of it you've got a really solid technique and you've got good musicianship and you're able to interpret a role or a song and sing it well yes absolutely and that your instrument obeys you Yes. obeys your your intelligence about it what you're singing hopefully. and the rest of it's in the lap of the gods isn't it the twinkling the 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 absolute stars once that's been done it's the people that can really bring those things together and make the hairs stand up on the back of your neck and they're the people we want to go and see in the opera house Absolutely. Well, let's hope that we all get back to normal again, Felix. Yeah, soon as. And that brings us back to what we discussed on the Primal Sound workshop about, we, you know, we were saying that Primal Sound isn't just how your body responds in the larynx and the pharynx. It's that connection to other people, a very basic primal connection to other people. You can't really define what that, again, to use the term X factor quality is, but you go and watch someone that, that a real top line professional singer and you feel something. And you, you can't necessarily quantify it scientifically. Yeah, that's right. That's what they're being paid for. Yeah. Help yeah. us feel. 
Yeah, I yeah. love that sort of that apologies term. The, you know, it's the social engagement system, and that's what it is. It's like when you're engaged socially with a fabulous voice like that and engaged emotionally, you are drawn in. You can't do anything else. You have to listen. You want to know what's coming next. Mm, it's a great thing to be able to do that, mm. and to be on the other side of it as well. When you get in that zone yourself as a performer, and you think. Oh, it's all here. It's all so easy. I'm totally in character, and you mustn't interrupt that that flow. Mm. Stay in it, and you say, say thank you very much. It's, it's, you, <laughs> you kind of think you kind of say, where have I been? Where have I just been for the past few minutes? Yeah. You, you've just on. gone into the zone so much. Come back, come back to reality. Where, where have I been? Am oh, I dreaming? I don't know when I'm driving. Sometimes, Andrew, I think, how did I get here? I don't yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly that, yeah, and that's it—that kind of re real mindful moment you're in. You're just in in the flow, in the alpha wave brain patterns, and it's 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 fantastic. You know, the other thing, going back a little bit to um, sometimes my pupils, I'll go through a session, and I'll I'll sit with this blank look on my face as always. They say, "What's wrong?" I said, "I'm just listening. I'm just listening to you sing and communicate. I'm no longer hearing faults or things I want to work on." And oh. that's with, uh, and that's it. It's just once we get to that point, it's like it's great. I'm just now. I say. I'm a, I'm a backseat passenger now, yeah. and it's great. Take me where you want to go. <laughs> yeah. I love it. That's why we all do it in the end, isn't it? Well, exactly, yeah. The fact that to get there needs a very systematic, detailed, knowledgeable approach to empower the students, to give them autonomy um, in their own learning to be able to do this sort of superhuman thing at the end of it. Yeah. And I think the, the way you create uh, uh, an environment that encourages uh, experimentation and practice and it's completely, you know, it's like, no, it's fine, just just feel free. I had someone recently came to like, I don't want to forget how to sing. So I'm scared to sing this song in case you tell me it's wrong. It's like, okay, and how do we change something that you're so protective of? Let's just try a few different things, shall we, and see what happens. Experiment, yeah. Experiment, you know, again, but completely non-judgmental. Let's try something, okay? It's fine, it's fine. As long as you're not, not abusing abusing yourself and the voice, this, the sound isn't abusive, then we're fine, let's play with it. Let's make it a bit more of this, a bit more of that, yeah. I think, Andrew, the lovely thing is sometimes I've used the uh, demonstrating voice, you see, and I've said, now I want you to come around here, swap places with me. I'm the student, you're the teacher. I want you to demonstrate what you want me to do with this phrase. <laughs> and I'll turn it on and I'll go into demonstration mode. And, of course, the singing comes out perfect. Yeah, and you yeah. say, now what did you just do? Yeah. Oh, <laughs> oh. Shall I use demonstrating? Yeah, use demonstrating voice. It feels like play voice. Exactly. Like your head's going to roll if you don't get this right. That's right, yeah, yeah. You're right. It's just the, the, this feeling of playing with the musical yeah. instrument, and I think it's so valuable. But it is. This play in the studio is something it takes years of experience, I think, really, to get to that mm. place too. And mm. people to trust you enough. Definitely, yeah, definitely. It's like I'll, I'll take you on a journey, but I'm not going to leave you abandoned in the wilderness. We'll come back. If, if we get lost in the woods, I'll, I'll give you a map to find your way back. But, yeah, just play, enjoy. enjoy. Tell me I'm just a witch doctor. I might leave you in the <laughs> Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, put a spell on you. Yeah. <laughs>
And again, what other business, you know, the, the amount of criticism that we have built into our job, you know, if you're in an opera rehearsal room, you sat there with a language coach, um, a musical director, a couple of assistants, a director, a couple of assistant directors, a pianist, probably the second production pianist sat there as well, all with a score open, and you're being asked to block a scene for the first time. And you've got all this input, and you have to have an incredible amount of confidence to be able to, to deal with that well and to give of your best. Um, and if you can't experiment in the studio with your singing teacher in a safe place, you're never going to be able to cope with the demands of a production. Not at all. I think I mentioned before, I, I did um, a seminar for the NHS on um, social anxiety. And you know, essentially the question was, how do performers do what they do? And I'd say you're doing something that's a high physical and mental workload um, under public scrutiny with a huge fear of failure and a massive need for approval. And they're all huge psychological triggers, but you have to learn to cope with that. And if you've not been encouraged to, as I say, to, to experiment, to go into the margins a little in your lessons, again, it's, it's very fearful. And that's why people get, get so tense and therefore so stressed and don't give up the best. Certainly think from our point of view, encourage it. And we do that. I've seen that, you know, in the masterclass sessions that we've done on the courses. It's like, just relax, enjoy yourself. Just just let, let us hear you oh, come through the sound. Yeah, do it because you love it. Remember why you do it, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, we hope that the courses give you an experience that the, the, the practical course will give you an experience with experimenting with your voice find out the different noises you can make and then how you can put those together into this very specific aesthetic of classical voice because i think unlike musical theater um or ccm genres where there isn't this same completely obsessive aesthetic that you get in classical singing in classical singing you know you expect the bottom of the voice to sound like the top with seamless transitions throughout the whole thing and there's a very high expectation that the voice needs to carry over the orchestra and remain beautiful regardless of the sort of expression and uh, it still has to be yeah help me out jan what does it have to be it has to be bell bell canto it's gonna be bell you can't let you can't let your traviata stop you from singing your high c or e flat can you oh, oh no it's got to be absolutely functional right throughout and beautiful always and always audible and have the text audible and have the 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 color palette of what you're singing about always there going straight through into the voice it's immensely skilled and still sounds spontaneous. And, and, <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, when um, back in the sixties, when Maria Callas was singing Tosca at Covent Garden, we used to be able to get into the back of the balcony by giving a doorman ten bob. <laughs> you won't get the sack for that. Um, <laughs> And uh, we managed to go three times because I was obsessed with what she was doing. I was a student in the opera course. And I felt absolutely certain that what she was doing was spontaneous, that it was going to be different every night. And what I heard on those three performances was that it was exactly the same. <laughs> <laughs> every spontaneous was not spontaneous was hugely not spontaneous it was absolutely refined within a tiny degree to the music to the drama to the movement everything came across as spontaneous but was so magnificently choreographed so much a product of that woman's intelligence mm -hmm. you know and that for me was such a big wake-up oh it was stunning really stunning um, and I came away from those uncomfortable 
evening standing at the back of the very hot part of the uh, opera house in those days mm. but absolutely transported with this understanding that this huge intelligence this huge dramatic intelligence this immense amount of training and that had gone in to nurture this talent was going to be there for her night after night exactly the same at the behest of the composer and the producer because it was a Zeffirelli production mm -hmm. um, that Tito Gobbi was singing the Scarpia Wow. <laughs> wow, 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 What a treat. age performance. Yes, exactly. Do we think the role of the director... Do we think singers today could still do what she did? I think they could be taught to or encouraged to. I can't see I wonder whether... Around. I mean, when you get with a really great director, yes, absolutely. But I think the <laughs> there's more demand on the singer being a tool of the director now than yeah. there probably was then. What do you think? Is that fair, Jan, do you think? Or... Yes, I think it's become a much more a director's world because they're all trying to do something different, something that puts the, their stamp on the opera, um, whereas they should be still looking for something that enhances what the composer and the dramatist wanted. Mm. Um, and if they can work as a team much more, it, it's for me far, far better. The Visconti, Zeffirelli sort of years were, were stunning, quite apart from the fact they had the budget to dress the stage magnificently and, <laughs> and they had the budget to employ the very best singers. In the world at the time. Yeah. And I mean, everybody was caught up in that, that quality and that standard and it leaves a mark on you, you uh, for life in a way. Um, Stunning, absolutely stunning. The Visconti Don Carlos, you know, with wonderful people as well. Um, not a note, not a nothing was wasted. Everything had purpose. And I think the great composers, you can look at Britten, um, Mozart, Puccini, certainly, and Verdi, and you can translate what they've written in the score in terms of what drama they wanted, what intelligence they wanted, what... The musical references are not just a diminuendo or a sforzando or something. No. They're all drama-led. Yeah, emotional the, content. The great composers put what they wanted on the page. Yeah. And it, it's part of the singer and the director's <laughs> job to be able to interpret like that. And I have a problem, I have to say, in this day and age with young composers writing operas as a project, you know, trying themselves out. They have not stood in the prompt corner for 10 years <laughs> uh, in an opera house. And so they don't really understand what the medium is. They write all sorts of stuff, which is all very clever, but it's not opera. Hmm. No. It's interesting. Back then, all of these composers would have, as Jan said, acted as prompters. And now, certainly in England, we don't really have prompters. Hardly ever we have a prompter. So you've not got them in the box for all of the rehearsals and all of the performances at close quarters with these singers. Yeah. There's a sort of disconnect. Yes. The art form is a little different. We need to get back to some of that quality work again. I wish we could. I hope we can. <laughs> well, we can. Why not? I what? often say to my say to my pupils that the, the sheet music is just black ink on white paper. It needs you to bring it to life, and every singer should bring it to life in a different way. And one of the things, especially in musical theatre, I say 
as as a, an actress, as a singer, you know the story. As a character, you don't know where this is going to go to. This is a, this is an ongoing inner monologue. So, so why does that change? That what's what what happened between that phrase and that phrase? Separate it. Give me three minutes worth of conversation as to what happens in your mind and get inside the composer's mindset. He's he's put a diminuendo there. Why why is it suddenly subito piano here? What happened? What's the thought that makes you su suddenly back off and think, oh, I've gone somewhere? So that's the magic of it all. And when you really get people onto that and that understanding of music, it's it's fantastic. Yeah. And I, I, I can't see why, unless all the best composers are now writing um, MT music, maybe that's what's happened. Oh, Andrew. there's more money. There's more money. There's more money in theatre. <laughs> I don't know. We've still got some fabulous composers writing. Oh, we have. Yes, we have some. Jonathan Dove. I mean, yeah, 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 and and Mark Anthony Turnage as well. Young, were they young compared to being not dead? I suppose. <laughs> Very young. Young compared to Mozart and Wagner. <laughs> It's interesting actually because I, I did the um, the Silver Tassie and and Turnage came to see it. It was the the, the premiere in Dublin. And he came to see it, and we're having all kinds of difficulty with the score. Have you ever seen the score? It's like non tuplets and all sorts. And he says, no, he says I couldn't write down speech rhythm basically. What I, I, I wrote, if I wrote it down exactly how I wanted it to be, when you see all this complex notation, just sing it as you would say it. And it all went ah right. And the okay. chorus master, we've been agonising about trying. That's a dotted semi 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 demi semi wave. It's like no, I don't want that. It was interesting. Yeah. So he, he was very much on that kind of, you know, sing it as you would say it, which yeah. is, again, that, the perspective that you find a little bit more maybe in, in musical theatre. I always think you should be able to do roughly what's on the page and then you could, if you take a decision to play with it, then that's your decision and you should yeah. be able to explain why. Exactly. So, and then, probably to the conductor who's done yeah. Yeah. already yeah, in yeah. the place by then. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I remember when I was at the academy, Sondheim came and gave a week of master classes and I sat in the whole week. It was amazing. And um, watching him work with these young musical theatre singers and that, and he used to say, you know, he said, first interpret my rhythm and then you can think about changing it. If, you know, but have a go at what's on the page first. Yeah. Which was what Britain said to you, wasn't it, Jan? Yes, yes, he said, I said, what did, you know, what did you want here, Ben? And he said... I put it on the page, Janice, do what's on the page. <sighs> and I was talk I was asking him what emotionally he wanted. Colorwise he was wanting. And he said it's on the page. In other words, learn to interpret what looks yeah, yeah. like a musical instruction on the exactly. page. Turn that exactly. into a character reference. Yeah, that's it. What what am I asking her to do? What yeah, exactly what you're saying, Andy. Why has it gone quiet at that point? Yeah. There's an emotional reason. Because yeah. You know, um, I didn't even get to Wagner, and of course, he mm. was absolutely the pinnacle in a way. Mm. So. Well, and Wagner gets even more interesting because you'll be saying something, but the music underneath you is saying something completely different. So you're lying on stage, but your true emotional intent is evident in the orchestra. Well, so that the whole bag together, the orchestra and the voice, is, is the truth, not just the singer. Yeah. yeah which is another layer of complexity and you have to, I mean, always harmony tells a dramatic story as well, but particularly in Wagner, you have to oh, really get yeah. under the hood. The subtext is there as the leitmotifs, isn't it? Mm. Exactly.
Subtext is the word, always. What's underneath the words? What's underneath the music? What's in the what? What is the composer's intention? Can you get inside the, the composer's mind and then realize that and bring that to life for the audience? Because it's all there for you. I think you probably you'll know yourself. Like um, Pacini and Verdi are, are slightly different in the way. I think Pacini is far more specific in what he wants in terms of writing things onto the score. Yeah, and it's it's, it's, it's all on the paper if you look. Oh. You can think of those composers, the ones that just left it to you, and then the ones <laughs> that spent huge amounts of time writing every little detail. Elgar was the same. The scores are littered, absolutely littered. But it yeah. can either liberate you or put you in chains. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think we're getting there now, aren't we? So let's um, just remind everybody um, the course dates, which I've currently forgotten. 3rd of August to the 7th of August for the Uh, practical course and the 10th to the 14th for the pedagogy course. Absolutely. So we hope to see lots of you there. There's still places left if you want to sign up. Go to our website, www.classicalvoicetraining.com. Thanks for listening and we'll we'll see you all next time. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you, Janice. You're very welcome. Thanks, Janice. Bye.